Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church Sermon Archive. We are glad that you have decided to listen. We hope each and every sermon will exalt God, strengthen God's people, and lead the lost to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at our website at www.trinityweatherford.net under the Contact Us tab. And now, here is Pastor Skyler Spradlin opening God's Word. open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, back to Philippians chapter 3. I don't know about you, but it is good to be back for me in Philippians 3. It feels like home at this point, which is kind of sad because in a few perhaps months we'll be moving out of this home uh, into another place. Just in case you're wondering... Aside from the occasional pauses for this, that, or the other, we began Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, the first Sunday of 2021, back in January. And so the Lord has uh, sustained us through this so far. Maybe I'm speaking for myself, uh, but he's, He's blessed me, and I hope He's blessing you, and I look forward to the last uh, chapter and a half of this wonderful letter. We come now to chapter 3, verse 12, the middle of chapter 3 really here, but it's still a continued thought, but it's a, it's a decent break um, for us to, to transition to a new direction. That's exactly what Paul's doing in chapter 3, verse 12. Now before we, we do that, I want to set up this passage by reminding you of, a, well maybe highlighting a particular issue I, I see in our current cultural context in our current generational context really uh, and it's the issue of a lack of commitment that lack of commitment expresses itself in all sorts of ways but in general terms there is now officially designated a commitment phobia and it doesn't have any specific uh, specific scientific name like all the other phobias it's just simply called commitment phobia It's the fear of committing to something for the fear of something better coming along. And so it doesn't outright negate all commitment. Temporary commitment is fine. Short-lived commitment is fine. But long-term commitment or commitment of a permanent nature creates in some, especially younger ones, commitment phobia. I might miss out on something better coming along. Now, as you can imagine, that's affected all kinds of things, even societal pillars. Things like marriage are affected. Things like raising your children are affected. Things like education, things like buying a home, things like a career are all affected by commitment phobia. And in fact, if anyone does dare today to enter into a long-term, even a lifelong commitment, Well, we've also engineered ways to escape those sorts of commitments. Today, we live in an age that is fully saturated in what is called no-fault divorce. There doesn't have to be a reason anymore to divorce your spouse just because you want to. We live in an age where the average uh, tenure at any given career is significantly lower than it was even 25 years ago. We live in an age where even raising children, what seems to be an immovable, unescapable commitment, is now pushed off on grandparents. More grandparents today are raising their kids than ever before. There's a lot of reasons for commitment phobia, maybe pride, maybe selfishness. Whatever it may be, it's crippling many of the societal pillars that a good society is built upon. But it's worse than that. It's not just a matter of society's well-being. A commitment issue shapes an entire worldview. 
And thus it shapes the way any given person lives according to that worldview. Which means it inescapably affects how people relate to and view and interact with even the church. Commitment in the church is low. In fact, Christianity as a whole has been reduced from the level of commitment to more now based upon things like feeling and emotion and, and things of that nature. It feels right, so I'll be in it until it doesn't feel right. It feels good, and so I'll involve myself into it, in it until it doesn't feel good. It seems enjoyable and there's benefit, and so I'll be a part of it until it's no longer enjoyable and no longer beneficial. That's not commitment. We see this commitment issue plague the church in things like doubting, specifically when feeling replaces faith. Nobody has assurance. Nobody has assurance of being right with God or being saved. We see commitment issues facing and plaguing the church in, in the context of church membership. Not only on an individual level is membership largely avoided by most people because there's accountability and commitment involved in that, but even churches, by and large, practice such loose and unstructured membership that it's pointless they even have membership at all. In our personal lives, Scripture reading, which is a definite commitment, is occasional at best. Church attendance, not membership, just attending, has been devalued now to voluntary. Mediocre. Evangelism is non-existent. Holiness is not pursued after. Scripture memories for the radicals. Even devotion to Christ is a part-time job. All of that's because, well, varied reasons, but at least partly because maybe something better will come along. It's hard to commit myself to something long-term. It's hard to continue in something for an entire lifetime. There's a term you should be familiar with today. It's connected to this and it pertains especially to the church. It's called, uh, the, well, the term is exvangelical, And some of you may know of this term. It's a term that means to leave evangelical Christianity. To abandon the faith, to abandon the church, to abandon Christ. It is now a new category of describing an individual. They are no longer evangelical. They are now exvangelical. And that description is being applied to an increasing number of young people. Not exclusively, but increasingly so. Following the secular mentality of deconstruction, de deconstructionism, de deconstructing my tradition, deconstructing truth, deconstructing who I am, just abandoning all that was once in the past and in favor for the new. And that includes even following Christ. The alarming rise of the exvangelical is frightening. Now, mind you, an ex-evangelical is only reserved for those who grew up in the faith. Who grew up in church, who at one time professed salvation, and who likely have believing parents. You can't be an ex-evangelical if you were never an evangelical. But if you were once an evangelical and you no longer want to follow Christ, well, now you can classify yourself as an ex-evangelical. You can even take courses now on deconstructing your Christian heritage, on how to no longer be a Christian. They're about $250 a course. Why is all that? Why do you think young people are leaving the church in droves? 
Why do you think we have a new surveying category called the evangelical that will only from this point increase? Why is there a commitment phobia? How do people, once exposed to Christ, maybe even raised in the church, raised around the gospel, raised around the scriptures, come to a place of abandoning them wholesale? That's a pressing question. And there might be a variety of answers. But I'm trying to prepare you for my sermon that I haven't started yet, by the way. I think part of the problem is that we have spent decades as a church sharing a message that's only partially true. With great desire and out of great motivation and great passion, we have desired people to simply be saved. And we should. That is right. And that is good. And if we're not about reaching out so that people might be saved, we've missed the mark. But in our effort to get people saved, which is poor language, by the way. In our effort to get people saved, we forgot to remind them that commitment to Christ is a lifetime commitment. You see, we have reduced Christianity to a moment of salvation. And that moment is what our Christian life from that point on revolves around. But Christianity isn't a moment. Christianity isn't even about an initial moment. Christianity doesn't revolve around even the initial moment of conversion, as important as it may be. Christianity is a lifelong pursuit of Christ. A lifetime commitment. A lifetime devotion. In the past, at least in my experience in the churches I'd been a part of and grew up in that, by the way, I love dearly. Discipleship and following Christ was reduced to just being saved. In fact, the mantra or the at least the practiced mentality was as long as we can get them saved then we'll just sit back and watch them and see if that salvation was true. We'll wait and we'll see. And we missed seeing people saved and then calling them to persevere. We missed seeing people profess salvation in Christ and then bringing them along saying, it is incredibly hard, don't give up. Walter Hansen, who wrote a, a good commentary on Philippians, he wrote this. He says, the authenticity of faith in Christ cannot be measured only by the intensity of one's initial decision to receive Christ. Instead, receiving Christ is a lifetime adventure. And he's right. The gospel that you and I believe in and the gospel that we proclaim is a gospel that declares a lifetime devotion as necessary to be saved. It's a gospel that says you must surrender yourself to Christ from this point and forevermore. It's not a gospel that only lives for the moment. It's not a gospel that's only effective for the moment. It's a gospel that entirely reorients and transforms our entire being from the first second and for the rest of eternity. That's the gospel we proclaim. That's what the gospel of the Bible demands. And that's what I think Paul's reminding his believers 
of in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. That the Christian faith is one that must be continued in. He does this from a personal perspective in verses 12 through 16. He highlights his personal own life to try to teach a lesson to the believers who are reading his letter that he's reaching out to. And his whole point in these few verses, 12 through 16, is to, to spur them on to continue. Continue pursuing Christ. Continue desiring Christ. Continue loving Christ. Continue with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You find this language all throughout the New Testament especially. Where it talks about the salvation of believers or salvation of the church. With the caveat on the end, if you endure to the end. Jesus himself uses that phrase, if you endure to the end. So Paul's writing to these believers after sharing this monumental personal biography. And he says, but you still have to keep going on. Look with me in verse 12. And let's read down through verse 16. And then I'll come back and try to tell you how we'll walk through it. So chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything... You think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I want to give you three continuing statements I think come out of this, this uh, passage. And they're designed to remind us that we continue on in these very areas. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the first one is to continue confessing. A Christian has a continuing confession. Now, I do not mean confession in the sense of a, an organized document or a statement of faith or, or, or statement of belief or anything like that. I mean confession by admitting truth. A con Christian confession, a continuing confession for the Christian must be one that is admitting a certain truth. And Paul has transitioned now, as I said, from verses 5 through 11. That's the thrust. Verses 5 through 11 are these m massively personal, profound, biographical statements where he says, I had this once worldly glorious life. By verse 8, I've given it all up for Christ to pursue after Him. And then he transitions in verse 12 to say, but I, I'm not there yet. So, this big change has happened in my life. This big transformation. And I gave up everything. We're talking like the most wealth, the most popularity. It would have been startling for any Jewish individual, even a Gentile individual that was somewhat familiar with Jewish custom. It would have been startling to read of what Paul gave up for Christ. Unless they think he's arrived, he comes down to verse 12 and he begins with this negative concept. That word not is the negative uh, implication of this whole phrase it's the hinge word of his transition the hinge word of what he's saying in other words we're not going to understand anything of what he says in the following verses if we don't first understand verse 12 and he says i'm not there yet but he says this not that simply he says it in two precise phrases the first one is not that i have obtained now, your Bible might say, my Bible says, obtained this. Your Bible might say, obtained it. Some Bibles might say, obtained all of this or some other um, word there added on. What Paul really wrote is that I have not obtained. That's it. It literally says, not that I have already obtained, 
or am already perfect? So the glaring question is, what's the object for the verb obtain? What's he talking about? What hasn't he obtained yet? Now, a good Bible student would back up into the previous passage and begin asking questions, and that's what we ought to do. We might consider verse 10 and verse 11 and verse 9. In one sense, if we looked at verse 10, we might say maybe he's referencing the resurrection. Not that I've obtained this. Or we might say he's talking about identifying with Christ via his sufferings, even the sufferings of his death. Maybe he's saying, I haven't obtained identifying with Christ yet. We could even back up into verse 9 and maybe he's referencing righteousness. Not that I've already obtained that righteousness. Aside from what I would say, massive theological obstacles to those three being the solution to the answer of verse 12, I think there are common sense reasons why none of those three things are what Paul's talking about in verse 12. For instance, it seems idiotic for him to say in verse 12, I haven't obtained the resurrection yet. Well, of course you haven't. You haven't died. Same is true for the sufferings of Christ. I haven't obtained identifying with Christ via suffering like He did in His death. Well, no, you haven't because you haven't died yet. I also don't think He's talking about righteousness from verse 9. Because the whole premise from verses 5 through 11 has been that He does have the righteousness of Christ. In fact, it's been that He's given up His self-righteousness for the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. One may make the argument, and they could make the argument, that we do not yet have that full righteousness because we're still struggling with sin. And Paul wouldn't deny that either. But that's not the way he's been talking about righteousness before. He's talking about that declared righteousness that makes him right with God. He says, I've given up my self-righteousness so I can have real righteousness in Christ So then to come down in verse 12 and say it's not that I've obtained that righteousness that doesn't fit with what he said before. So what is he referring to? What hasn't he yet obtained? Well, here's my answer. It's coming from our understanding and interpretation of verses 10 and 11. And it's found, I think, in the first few words of the first phrase of verse 10. He says... That I may know Him. Talking about Christ. I've given up everything. I've renounced it all. I've suffered the loss of all things. So that I can have the righteousness of God that's dependent upon faith for this singular driving purpose that I may know Christ. That I may know Him. The rest of this verse is explaining that. That I may know Him through the power of His resurrection. That I may know Him and identifying with Him through His sufferings. That I may even, verse 11, know Him through the future resurrection when I see Him face to face. That's what he says in verse 10 and 11. I think that's what he's referencing in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. In other words, not that I have already obtained Christ like I want to. In other words, I want more. I need more. I yearn and I long for more. Christianity is not about gaining Christ in this initial moment. To be a Christian means you thirst for Christ with this unquenchable thirst that only He can satisfy. Think about this with me a little bit from His perspective as well because it it, it highlights the profoundness of what he's saying. We're talking about this once Pharisee who so trusted in his works and his heritage and his ability that he actually thought he was right with God. Not just possibly right with God, but was as right with God as one could be. 
And now all of a sudden he says, I need more. I'm not there. We also have an apostle here who's been writing, who's been teaching, who's been planting churches. If anybody in the, in the world at the time knew anything about Christ, it's Paul, right? He comes along and he says, I'm not there yet. I want more. I need more. I don't know enough. It's this phrase that he uses in verse 12 that both shows the power of the gospel in converting a self-righteous Pharisee who thought he was right with God to a man who confesses, I need more of Christ. It also shows the continuing lifetime commitment that Christians are supposed to have in constantly chasing after Jesus. In case you're unaware, if you believe right now, if you sit today and everything's good in life, that the storms are, are passing, issues are, are at a low, not much turmoil is bubbling around me, things are really good and you think, I'm really walking with Christ. I'm doing really well with the Lord. I'm real satisfied. I'm real content. Maybe even thinking, I'm, I'm there. I've arrived. You're missing what the gospel demands. You're missing what an exposure to Christ does. You're missing what it means to be a Christian. A Christ follower is one who doesn't ever stop following. A Christ follower is one who keeps running hard after Jesus because they can't get enough. They need more of Christ. They need to know Him. They need to fellowship with Him. They need to commune with Him. They need to serve Him. They need to make Him known. I've abandoned my notes long ago. So let me just go on. Let's, let's look at the second phrase there. Paul says in verse 12, I haven't obtained Christ like I want. I don't know Christ like I want. I don't walk with Christ like I want. And then he says, it's not that I'm already perfect either. Again, consider just the power of the gospel here. This is a man who in verses four, three and four and five just told us he once boasted in his flesh. He bragged about his heritage. He bragged about his behavior. He bragged about his knowledge. He bragged about his works. He was self-righteous, not in a lorded over you sense. He literally believed him Self to be right with God based on his own efforts. And then he encounters this man Jesus. And by verse 12, his whole paradigm has shifted. And now he says freely. And he says openly. And he says in front of a whole church that he's writing to. Without being coerced. I'm not perfect. Not an ounce of me. Brother and sister, we have no room to believe we are perfect. And of all the people on planet Earth, we have no room to parade ourselves as perfect. Of all people who have ever lived, God's people must be the ones who know the most and, and quite clearly that they are far from perfect. To think we're perfect is to miss the very thrust of the gospel. Well, what does the gospel do? What, what, what do you think makes the gospel offensive? You think, it's, you think people are really offended by being told that God loves them? 
Or do you think they're offended by the gospel and hostile to the gospel because the gospel first and foremost demands you to say, I'm not perfect, I'm actually sinful and doomed. Well, people who know the gospel, Christians should, of all people, know that they're not perfect. We have no room to pretend or parade ourselves around as perfect or look down upon others because they are not where we are at. I debated on saying this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I'm behind a pulpit, so. We have, a, we have a great enemy, a great adversary. Not great in stature, but unrelentingly cruel. And he would wreck God's bride, the church, any way that he could. But I think most often... He infiltrates the church subtly. Maybe here or there, loud bangs, church splits, division. Yeah, sure, those things happen. Even the best and healthiest of churches are infiltrated by the enemy subtly. I think one of the most subtle ways that the enemy has wreaked havoc in the church is by making us believe that we have to pretend everything's good when we gather together. Making us think that we have to put on a good front and a good show. That it's embarrassing to cry and repent and confess. You know, there are some sitting here today This week, they've yelled at their wife. Or they've yelled at their husband. There are some sitting here that this week, they've had hatred in their heart for a co-worker or a family member. There's some sitting here today with bitterness that's just constantly running through their veins. Some sitting here that have looked at pornography this week, probably multiple times. There's some sitting here today that they got drunk this week. They've had cursing lips. There are some sitting here, and I know these things for a fact. There are some sitting here today, and you wouldn't know it. They're struggling with homosexuality. There are some sitting here today thinking about divorcing their spouse. Some sitting here thinking they wish they didn't have kids. Some sitting here today that I know are still struggling with the guilt of an abortion. Our laundry list of failures is very long. And it's easy to, to increase the list. Some sit here today struggling with drugs right now as we speak. The list is endless, really. But you would never know it when we gather together. I don't know if that's right or wrong. But it seems a bit alarming to me. That we can all agree that none of us sit here perfect. But we all have to also agree that we know very little of the struggles of one another. We would all sit here and agree that our laundry list of problems and issues and sins is incredibly long, longer than I even want to admit, and probably longer than I want to, want to realize my own self. There's more to my issues than I even know. But we also are forced to admit we don't ever see that. All the reasons why are varied, aren't they? There's fear and confession. In fact, I was visiting with a group of people just this last week. And I said, you know, I read this quote long ago. I don't, I don't remember who said it. and I don't remember where I read it. But I said, I read it and it stuck with me. The quote was that the church is the only army who shoots its wounded. And every person agreed in that group. There's no explanation needed. It's hard to, to own up. It's hard to, to confess. It's hard to let the front down because we're not the most gracious people. 
or the most patient or the most merciful or the most kind. We're often quick to gossip, quick to condemn, quick to correct, quick to ostracize. The truth is, God's people are a people who must continue admitting that they're not yet perfect. I'm not saying that we air out all our laundry before each other all the time. Truth be told, that'd be depressing. But sometimes, you need your brothers and sisters to know that not everything's good. They may not need to know details of your life and your sinful history, but they may need to know the kids were a real pain getting ready for church this morning and my sanctification is tested. Or my marriage isn't where I want it to be. Or I'm making decisions that I shouldn't be making. Or even I'm being drawn to things I'm not proud of. God's people don't need to know all the details, but they need to be the safe place for you to struggle with sin, to wrestle with your imperfections, and to freely and openly admit, I don't have it all together. That's what it means to be Christian. You know, Paul emphasizes this again in verse 13. But he, he does it in a more personal way. An emphatically personal way. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I take this to be a reference both to what he said in verse 12, obtaining Christ and walking with Christ as he ought to, nor has he made perfection his own yet. But the, the emphasis here, the highlighting personal word, is that word consider. It means to contemplate, examine, evaluate. To give careful thought to a matter. Here's the Apostle Paul in all of his writing ability and his incredible knowledge and devotion and sacrifice for Christ. And he says, truth be told, when I honestly evaluate myself, give careful thought to my life, I sincerely evaluate. I don't have it. I'm not there. I'm not who I want to be. I don't have what I want. I'm not doing what I want. I'm not yet perfect. This is a continuing confession of the whole Christian life. This is, this is what we do. On verse 13, Walt, uh, that, that commentator Walter Hansen says, it's as if Paul is looking at these people, putting his arms on their shoulders, face to face with them, looking them in the eye and saying, I really mean what I said. I'm not perfect. Paul's not offering lip service here. He's not propagating a, a false humility so that he might en enhance his reputation. He's not trying to just connect with his audience. He's being sincerely honest. I have not arrived. Walking with Christ is a lifetime commitment. And part of that lifetime commitment means we must continually confess the truth about ourselves and the truth about our relationship with God. It is not anywhere near we would, where we would have it. And if the moment ever comes where we believe we have arrived or that the problem is with everybody else and not me or that I know everything I need to know about Christ, that's the moment we've ceased to walk in the way of Christ. Now, I can't end there. I have to get to the rest of verse 12 because at this point, some might be tempted to give up. Some of you might want to respond as the disciples did to Jesus in John chapter 6. And they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then they left. They quit following. 
And if we're not careful, that's, that's the temptation we face, right? That, that's the, that, that might be entering into my heart. Then, then who's sufficient for these things? Why do this? You've told me I'm a sinner. That I don't know Christ like I ought. That I, my church isn't as open as I want it to be. And that I should freely admit all of that. Those aren't easy things. Well, don't be tempted to give up because Paul's continued confession of imperfection and lack of walking with Christ and obtaining Christ as he wants doesn't drive him to give up. It drives him further towards Christ. It's not Paul's intention that you give up, nor is it my intention that you give up. It's that we get to the rest of verse 12. He says, but... I don't lose hope in the face of my imperfection. I don't retreat. I don't throw in the towel. And I don't throw a pity party. I run hard after Christ. Notice the phrase, press on. Effort is implied in that. Strenuous effort is implied in that. Dedication and devotion a steam engine that plows through the snow, moving it off the tracks as it keeps going, never missing a beat, never slowing down. may not be the fastest thing in the world, but it's constant. It's consistent. It's immovable. As I consider my imperfection, as I consider that I have not yet obtained Christ, you know what that makes me do? I press harder to make it my own. I press harder to get Jesus. What does that say about our God? Who died for those, Romans 5, who were ungodly and sinful. What does it say about this man, Jesus, to embrace the imperfect? Paul says, I go after Christ. One quick comment about this. You know, in recent years, at least I've noticed, maybe, maybe it's been longer, but in recent years there's been kind of an emphasis on uh, grace in the church. And I think rightly so. I think there should be. But in an effort to react against works, there's maybe been a, an overreach uh, on the nature and purpose of grace. Now, it is true that we cannot do anything in our lives without God's grace first. God's motivating, fueling, driving grace. So try as you might to be a better person. Grit your teeth and clench your fist. You will not change without God's grace. It is the fountain and foundation by which we move and work and live and on and on and on and on. But as humans do, we tend to take something too far to the extreme to negative effects. Because the grace of God being our fuel and our foundation and our motivation and all those lovely things does not negate the fact that we are still to grit our teeth and clench our fists. You see, I can say both things. Gritting your teeth Clenching your fist will not result in an ounce of lasting change in your life. Try as hard as you may. But the grace that God shows us and the gospel that saves us means we still grit our teeth and clench our fist because we want Christ. We move with all the might that we can muster up to have Jesus. So Paul writes and he says... I don't give up, I don't toss in the towel, and I don't sit around waiting for Christ to just supernaturally infuse me with perfection. I work. I run. I press. I devote myself. I'll end with this, but we have to consider this last phrase. It's the reasoning that he's able to do this 
because Christ Jesus has made me His own. There's nothing like doing something um, with the belief that it'll never come about. I've kind of gotten that way with my yard. Uh, I nurture it, I mow it, I water it, I fertilize it, I care for it, and it still looks horrible. I feel hopeless in it. But when we know we're guaranteed in our efforts, it changes the nature of what we do and how we do it. Paul's got great confidence not to give up, to keep pressing on. And that confidence is because Christ did it first to him. I pursue Christ because Christ has pursued me. I press on for Christ because Christ pressed on to me. I cling to Christ because Christ clings to me. I grow in Christ because Christ gave Himself for me. It is the motivation for Him to continue on in this lifetime commitment to Jesus. I haven't obtained the relationship with Christ or the knowledge of Christ that I want. I'm not perfect, but I'm still after it because it's guaranteed to me Christ has done it first. And I belong to Him. So backtracking here, what can the world do to me? What does it mean then to confess my sins and own up to my imperfections? What does it mean to face hostility for this gospel? The answer is it means nothing. You're not at loss for owning up to your imperfections. You're not at loss for facing down hostility and sharing the gospel. You're not at loss in confessing your sins to a brother or a sister because Christ has you. He has made you His own. He will not leave you nor forsake you. He has guaranteed that your pressing on is not in vain. It will be worth it. In other words, you will get what you're after. What's Paul after in his pressing on? Perfection and to obtain Christ. What's well, the very grabbing of Christ, grabbing me, that means one day I will obtain Him. And one day I will be perfect. My walking with Jesus today is difficult. It is uphill both ways. The path is small, it's rarely smooth, it's always rocky. There's thorns on both sides. It's very narrow. I have to watch every single foot be ever vigilant. And I slip off the path constantly and I'm poked by these thorns. I'm attacked by these animals. I hear the growls behind me. I can't see too far in front of me. It's a hard journey. But I know where this path ends. And I know that I've been promised safe passage. And I know that since I'm on it, I'm guaranteed to get to the end. And when I get to the end, I have all that I've been pursuing. I have Christ. We'll look at this later in more detail. But in verse 14, he says this press on phrase again. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Christian faith is a lifetime commitment, but it's not an easy commitment. It's a commitment that requires a continuing confession. A continuing confession that often leaves you feeling humbled, not strong. It's also a faith that requires a continued confidence. And that confidence is Christ Himself. Because Christ has us, we can have Him. Because Christ gave Himself for us, you can press on. Because Christ has made you His, you can say, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm still going. One day you'll be tempted. 
Don't be like Peter and disregard me here and think, oh, Lord, that'll never happen to me. One day. You'll be tempted to become an ex-evangelical. The thought will enter your mind. One day the journey will get tough. The trials and temptations will be seemingly too much. And our enemy will whisper into your mind. Just give it all up. But Christianity is a lifetime commitment. And all you have to do is continue confessing. I'm not perfect and need the gospel. And continue in your confidence. Christ has made me his own. I belong to him. These are the ingredients of perseverance, church. Let us be a people who press on. Let us be a people who run to Christ. Cling to him. Believe that he's forgiven us of us of our sins. Rest in that grace. Father, you are abundantly good to us. Able to do more than all that we ask or think. And in fact, you have. I could not have ever. Ever imagined a better saving plan. You have not only thought of the plan, you initiated the plan, acted on the plan, you are completing the plan. You're bringing us home. And we confess with all regret that we don't yet know you and walk with you like we want. We're not yet perfect. Things you know to be truer than we do. But God, we want to keep pressing on. Give us the fortitude and the resolve to do so. Give us the devotion and the commitment to continue in the faith. Remind us of our confidence that Christ has given Himself for us. We are His. Thank You, Lord, for the cross. Thank You for Your love and salvation. Thank you for your resurrection. You are our living God. Bringing us home. We love you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.